verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword and with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming together, all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, to draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord for the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. It's a heavy passage. Uh, what this passage is about is going to be covering a universal history, a, a universal picture of what some might call the end of the world. But as Christians, we don't really believe in the end of the world because we believe God is coming to make a new heavens and new earth. Sometimes when people think about future, even Christians think about the future, they think the goal at the end of it all is to go somewhere else. It's to go to heaven, whether that be floating amongst clouds and plucking on a harp and wearing a white dress or robe, I suppose it would be. Uh, some people have an image of that is the goal of all things, that we would sit on a cloud and strum a harp, and look slightly bored uh, in our free time. Uh, that is not the image that the Bible gives of where history is heading. History is heading to a point where God comes back and sets things right. Now, there's different discussions amongst scholars and amongst Bible teachers about whether... That means that this earth will be destroyed and a new one will be made, or if this one will be remade. Uh, what I've looked at most of the time, I think, is that what happens is God comes back and remakes our world and redeems our world and sets it right and renews it. So when it talks about a new heavens and new earth, it's talking about the world made Right. It's talking about the life of laughter and of work and of dancing and of music and of food 
in a friendship all made right. When I was a kid, I used to think about how we were destined for heaven, and it didn't always capture my imagination. It didn't always stir up my heart. But then I found out that the Bible says what we're actually looking for is a new heaven and a new earth. A new earth to dwell on where God dwells with us. In all of your life, the work and the laughter and the dancing and the mu- Well, if you're Baptist, probably not dancing. But the music and the food and the feasting and the friendship and working with your hands, all of that will be redeemed. It will all be done to God's glory. If this is what the Bible says the future will be. That God will set all things right. And that stirs up my heart. That's like, oh, so you were made for earth, just not an earth that's messed up like this. You were made to work. You were made for friendship. You were made for feasting. You were made for laughter. Just not the way it is now. So what we long for is a world set right. And this says that the new heavens and new earth that he makes shall remain before him. That when God gives that to us as a gift, we will say, it was always meant to be like this. We were always meant to live in fellowship with God and with each other and be able to live full lives to his glory. So this picture at the end of the book of Isaiah is going to give us a grand picture of what that world is like. It's not always, uh, it's sometimes meant to give you a grand picture, not always like, you're not supposed to read it like a newspaper article that's saying this will happen and this will happen and this will, and this happened. Like, it's not always that way, but it's supposed to give you a grand picture of what that will be like, of what will be involved in that. And what will happen? If you notice, this passage is bookended with two things of pretty intense judgment. It begins in saying the Lord will come in fire. And it ends talking about dead bodies of men who rebelled against God. And then there's this inspiring part in the middle And we might be tempted to skip over the bookends, but they're there for a reason. Isaiah ends his entire prophecy, his entire book, on that down note of judgment. So let's read that 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. It's intense. A lot of times people have an idea of who God is, and they make that in their mind. They take maybe one thought, maybe they go, well, in the Bible it says God is love, and that sums up all things. And only by their imagination they go, well, I can't imagine God judging like that. I can't imagine God dealing with people like that. Well, who's the authority? You 
in what you can imagine or God in what he's revealed in his word? So the question is, even if you're uneasy with that, even if when I read that you go, whoa, I'm not sure I like that, I want you to pause a sec and go, the issue isn't whether you like it or not, is, is it true? And I think we may think, I don't like judgment, I don't like fire, I don't like the idea of God with a sword, which is, again, a figurative way of speaking of God's judgment, but is it a reality? And I think we know, deep in our hearts, that it is. That when something awful happens, like in Paris a couple weeks ago, or anywhere else, horrible things happen, and we go, someone needs to make sure those people answer for it. Or you find out about a grisly murder, and you go, someone needs to make sure someone answers for that. Do we want to live in a universe where, in the end, no one answers for anything? Could you say a God who made that world would be just? You wouldn't. Even if you go, I, I don't think God should judge for certain things, we would say we don't want a world in which it just rolls on and on and no one ever answers for what they've done. And the reality is we like to point our finger and say those other people are the problem with the world, but we know when we look in the mirror that we are part of the problem that we inflict pain and hurt. It may be to a different degree than others, but we know we are guilty. In 17, it says, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. That's speaking of those who worship other gods. There's a bunch of language there to speak of people who are worshiping other gods. Something that might stick out to you is eating pig's flesh. Uh, we don't have time for this, but we could go on into the New Testament and talk about why that is no longer in effect for us today under the New Covenant. Uh, I feel like that would be a huge distraction from the rest of the passage, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming together all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. So here in this middle passage, what happens sometimes in Old Testament prophecy is that the second coming of Christ, which we are still waiting for, and the coming of Christ kind of blend together in prophecy. And then with the gift of hindsight and revelation and more time, we can say, oh, this is happening. In this passage, it's kind of blended together here it's kind of like this is the grand picture of when christ comes but now we understand that there is this time in between his comings in which it's partially true now but it will be fully true in the future so it says the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues so in the new earth it's going to be really uncomfortable for you if you're a racist. Really uncomfortable. I know sometimes just in our human nature, we might be uncomfortable with people who look different than us, 
who speak a different language than us. That may not be in our comfort zone. But if God's goal in the end is to gather all nations, all ethnicities, all races, all languages, then we best start getting comfortable with people who look different than us and speak different than us. We live in a diverse area where every day we go out, we hear different languages, we see people who look different than us, and God wants to gather all those people together. Sometimes people well-meaning, I think, they say, well, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. And I think they're saying, I I don't want to treat people differently based on how they look. And I think that is obviously really good not to treat people differently based on how they look. But I think it's misleading because every time there's a vision of God's kingdom and the future and of heaven, here's what they see. They see every tribe, every nation, every tongue. They see our differences. They see all those colors. So to say, I don't see color, I'm colorblind, unless you actually are colorblind, I suggest you don't. It's to rob God of his glory, because who made all the many shades of our skin? God did. And it brings him great glory in its diversity. See, sometimes I think we are very centric in that we think we are the center of everything. We believe our ethnicity is the center of the world. Our nation is the center of the world. And it should startle us to know that God does not see our world that way. He does not see white people as the center of the world. He does not see America as the center of the world. Now, sometimes in our brokenness, we may see that, we may feel that, we may see people talk that way, but when God sees the world, he does not see us at the center of it. He sees a multi-ethnic vision of beauty. He sees a variety of colors and of language that can bring glory to him. And his desire is to bring those people together is to gather all nations and tongues. But the question is, how is he going to do that? How can he do that? Because when we look at our world, people take sides. People take, they're like, I'm on my ethnicity side, you're on your ethnicity side, and we're against each other. We see people who are against each other or who are uncomfortable with people who speak other languages and want them as far away from them as possible. How is God going to do that? In America, we we believe in diversity and plurality. Uh, We are trying this thing called pluralism, in which there's all sorts of people that believe different things, that look differently, that come from different backgrounds, and we're all supposed to get along. The key word is tolerance. We're supposed to have tolerance for people. And I, I think tolerance is a good thing in that we show tolerance to people. And tolerance can mean two different things. One thing is tolerance can mean 
uh, it doesn't matter what you believe or what you think, uh, everyone's right. Some people use it that way. But tolerance actually should mean we see the people around us and it determines how you treat people who believe differently than you. So tolerance means you're still going to treat people well, even if they think differently. And we're trying this great experiment in America and say, we can all be unified. But what happens is, is the leaders and other people, when they shift, sometimes people get pushed to the outskirts. People, basically what I'm saying is the great pluralism experiment doesn't always work. And in fact, it hasn't yet. That people can't always come together. What can unite us? That there's this tension. But here's how God says he will unite them. He says, they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. Here is what God is going to do to bring us all together in our diversity, in our different languages, is he is going to give us a bigger vision. A vision of his glory. Of all his greatness. God is going to show us something greater than ourselves. God is going to show something that can capture our hearts. What's going to unite us is God. God himself. And it says he will set a sign among them. What is the sign that you can unite all of us? And with the help of the New Testament, we can say the cross. The cross and Christ is the thing that can bring us all together. Jesus says, when I be raised up, I will draw all men to myself. The idea of a sign here is a rallying cry, a rallying point. If you've ever watched a war movie, sometimes uh, things have gone into disarray and someone raises a flag and says, rally to me. And everyone will gather to them and then they will charge. What Christ has done is raised up the cross and says, rally to me. And all nations and all tongues will come crowding in to the cross. And here's why the cross can be the great uniter. We hear two things at the cross. We hear that you are more sinful than you care to admit. That's what you hear at the cross. When you come to the cross of Christ, you are first going to hear a word of judgment that you are sinful, that you deserve judgment, that you are more sinful than you even care to admit with your closest friends. There are thoughts that run through your mind that you're like, man, I must be a bad person if I think that. Or there are things you have done that you don't care to admit to anyone. You hear that at the cross. And here's why this is important as a rallying cry for all of us. Is we like to measure ourselves against other people all the time. But at the, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. It is equal. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. In fact, that is partly how Christian community works. Is that... You come in here, and you may be a really heinous sinner, but guess what we know here? So am I. And we like to position ourselves in all sorts of ways in our world and rank ourselves as better than. We do this with 
well, moral life, well, I don't sin as bad as you. We do this with our bank accounts. I make more money, so I am better than. I am from this part of town, so I am better than. I am from this ethnicity, so I am better than. I am from, so I am better than. That's what we try to do in our world. We try to say, I am better than. And at the cross, that is not what we hear. We hear, you are sinful. And here's the second thing you hear, that you are more loved than you understand, that you are accepted, that you are forgiven. You hear two things. You hear that you're more sinful than you care to admit, and that you are more loved than you can imagine. That is what we hear at the cross. That is why it is the rallying point. That is why it is the center of what we do here. Because you walk in that door. I am not better than you because I am also a sinner. But guess what? God has accepted us and loved us and forgiven us. He's done that to me so I can extend that to you. It is the rallying point. It is a sign by which all nations and all ethnicities and all languages and all people, whether they be a saint or a sinner, can rally to. Because Christ says, you are judged and sinful, but I will bear that judgment and you are loved and accepted and forgiven. It transforms how you see the people around you. Gone are the days of I am better than because of da-da-da-da-da. I am better than because I speak this language, because I look this way, because I have this cool factor, because I uh, live this place, because I drive that car. We are constantly ranking ranking ourselves against each other, even when we aren't trying to. That's just how our world works. But the cross is the rallying point by which we are all united to God and catch a vision of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' face that we hear, you are sinful. And it humbles us. And we hear that you are loved and accepted beyond all other things. And when we talk about being gospel-centered, this is what we mean. That this is primary. That the fact that the cross says to you, you are loved, you are accepted, you are forgiven, you are welcomed, into the family. And because that is true, because God has loved you, this is how the logic of the New Testament works constantly. Because you are loved so greatly, you love your neighbor because they are also an object of God's love. That God has welcomed you into his family, so you welcome whoever walks through that door from whatever background they are. You love them. You love your neighbor, because if Christ has welcomed you so generously, so we become people of hospitality, because at the heart, God has welcomed us to his table. So then we do. That's the logic. We always receive, and then, oh, I've received this thing, so now I need to give it. It's the rallying cry of all humanity. It is God's love, so we pass it on. It is God's hospitality, so we pass it on. It is God's welcome and acceptance, so we accept and welcome each other. So God is going to let the nations and tongues see his glory, and he will set a sign among them, that's Jesus and his cross, 
It says, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bull, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. So after that, he says, people are going to see my glory. I'm going to gather them all, set a sign among them, and then I'm going to send people out. And he lists a bunch of locations that are north and south and east and west. And then he says the coastlands, which are just the farthest reaches of the world. And he says, I'm going to send you out to declare my glory. Which sounds strangely like, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples. Right here we have the great commission of Jesus. In that when nations and tongues see God's glory, they are sent out. That they are sent out to the farthest reaches of the world. We have sent one missionary recently out from here, Josh Grimaldi. Many of you know him. His goal is to eventually get to Thailand and to minister to the Thai people. It's because God has given him a vision beyond a normal human vision. God sees God's heart for all nations He sees God's heart for all nations. So Josh says, I want to love the Thai people. I want to declare God's glory to the Thai people. And right now he is laboring in New York City amongst many nations who have all gathered into that city and is ministering to them. And he's seeing them come to faith in Jesus because he's declaring the glory of God to them. So my question for you is, maybe God would send you Have you considered that God would send you to another nation, to another ethnicity, to cross cultures because some have not heard? I think it's like 6,000 people groups have no gospel witness in their language. That there are tribes around the world that have no gospel witness. It says these people have not seen or known God's glory. So my question for you is maybe God would send you. Maybe he would send you to the coastland. Maybe he would send you across oceans and across borders in order to share the gospel with people. But the good news for us is you don't need to go across borders always because God also sends you right here. God sends you, and there's many nations around here. You have many neighbors. And that God, when he pulls you in and rallies you to the sign of the cross, he sends you out. You are sent. There are people around you who have not known or seen the glory of God. And the way they see that, the way we see that, is in the face of Jesus Christ. And you are the body of Christ. So how are they going to see the glory of God Unless you go and love your neighbors, unless you go and serve them, unless you go and extend the hospitality and love and mercy of God, you are walking the world as the love and hospitality and generosity and mercy that you have received. God has poured it out into you so that you can be that for others. And yes, we want to meet physical needs. We want to reach people and care for them however they are hurting and suffering, whether it be spiritual or physical. But we must never forget 
that there is eternal suffering. And this passage makes that very clear. It says, go out and declare the glory. But there are some who are going to be excluded from the new earth. There are some who are going to be excluded from the kingdom. There are some who are going to be judged and are not going to receive the mercy that we have. It's because they don't know yet the glory of God. And God has called on you to go. He has sent you out. Verse 20. And it says, And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. The picture here is God has sent people out. He's rallied them to the cross, sent them out, and now they are bringing them all in. And the picture is epic because it says they're bringing them as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and litters on mules and on dromedaries. So whatever it takes to get people to Jesus, to get people to the glory of God, they're doing it. So the picture is, oh, you got a horse? Okay, take this person to Jerusalem. Take this person to God. It says, okay, you got a chariot? That, that's like Rolls Royce of uh, ancient, ancient rides there. So take the chariot. Take, it says camels and mules. Take all of those, whatever it takes. And if you can use your imagination for a sec, just imagine all of those, whatever, different rides, maybe some people are just running, whatever it takes, getting them to God, getting them to Jerusalem, and they're being carried like offerings. So people would bring their offering to the temple, they would bring their offering, their grain offering, and, and offer it up to God. So this is saying that as part of their worship, as part of their offering before God, they aren't just worried about the grain. They are worried about bringing people. Which raises this question. Is coming to worship here enough worship? Or can we not count it as worship till we've invited someone? Can we not count it? Because here it says their act of worship is to bring people to God. So are we missing out if we aren't inviting and sharing Jesus with people a key act of worship? Are you declaring the glory of God to people around you? Are you inviting people to come? Are you doing it in whatever means possible? Maybe you don't have a chariot, but you have a horse. Maybe you don't have a mule, but you have a camel. Whatever you have, are you using that to bring people to God? We, we use our missional communities. We throw parties with them and invite people in. Maybe that's one way we can use to bring people to God. Maybe just by you being a faithful, good neighbor, you can use that to bring people to God. Maybe by serving your community, you can speak the glory of God in that situation and bring people to God. 
Uh, we've been talking about starting a number of classes next year. Do you have some gifting that you can pass on to someone in a class for the community and in that also share about the glory of God in the face of Jesus? Whatever means necessary. We all have different gifts. And we can all use those gifts to share the glory of God with the people around us. But are we doing it? Is it good enough for us to just check off our list that we have gone to worship? Or is there still a grain offering that we need to bring? Is there still someone we need to bring? We've been talking about starting Discovery Bible Studies. Discovery Bible Studies are like a a 14-week study in which you take someone through the Bible and take them through the grand story of Scripture And you do this often with people who don't yet know the glory of God. Who could you invite to work through a Bible study with you? It may take a while. You may be on a mule. They aren't as fast as the horse or the chariot. But are you willing to walk alongside someone so that they can come to know the glory of God? It's not easy. It's not fast. But there's people who need to hear about Jesus, who need to hear about his glory. What are you doing to accomplish that? Who are you inviting? Bringing someone to church, bringing someone to a Bible study, maybe just bringing a blessing to someone is an act of worship. We like to say we're coming to worship, we're singing here. But the very act of laboring so that someone can come to understand who Jesus is, is worship. And it says 21, And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Do you know what that means? This would be shocking for the Israelites. Because Israelites, often like us, had a very them-centric view of the world. Israel was at the center of the world for them. They were at the center. But this grand vision says there are all nations, all languages coming to Jerusalem. We are bringing all of them. And it says, I'm going to make some of them, some of those people from the nations, your priests, your Levites. And that would have shocked them. They would have said, what? How can these Gentiles, these outsiders, be one of our priests? And this is powerful for us today. This is like starting, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That all of you, we do not have one priest who stands up front, but you are all priests. You all have access to God. You all get to serve God equally. And this says that some of those people that they bring to God are going to be priests, and and he's going to make them Levites. So, you know what that means about the people that you can reach? That you, not just the professionals, not just the pastors, but people that you bring can have a larger effect than just you. What if you just poured into someone and discipled them and poured into them And they rose up and accomplished even more than you did. And what if they did the same? Just think 
of the multiplication that could happen? What if each of us in the next year committed to laboring to bring someone to Jesus and thought about it every day, prayed about it every day, and then trained them up and they did the same? Imagine the beauty of that multiplication. Verse 22, For as the heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And here's the warning at the end. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, what's captured my heart up to this point has been the image of all nations and of all tongues and of Christ rallying people together and of people being sent out to declare the glory of God and having all the people stream in. That has really captured my heart. And I say, I want that God. I want to give that glory to that God. I want to serve that God. I believe like that is... I see the magnificence of his glory and I see his heart and I want that heart in myself. I want that heart for people and for nations and for all people. But at the end, he gives a warning. So maybe some people would hear the prophecy of Isaiah and still not be captured by that. So he's going to try to wake you up. He's going to say that there are some people who are going to be excluded. And we don't like that. We like inclusion. And we've seen the magnificent inclusion of this passage, that it doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, what language you speak, that the gospel is incredibly inclusive. Anyone can be included. It doesn't even matter what they've done. They can receive forgiveness and grace and mercy But he comes down to the end with a warning. Not everyone will be included in the end. There's going to be judgment and there's going to be exclusion. And it says the fire won't go out. It says the worm shall not die. And it says shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So maybe for you, you haven't caught a glimpse of God's glory yet. And so Isaiah has a warning for you that there is coming a judgment that we must all face. We can either face that judgment and answer for what we've done, or we can look to the one who has taken our judgment and bore it so that we don't face that horrible judgment that we don't face, that we aren't on the outside of this great city, that the people, it says, come out and see them who have rebelled against God. Is your heart still in a place of rebellion? Have you come to that place where you are humbled, where you hear the words of the cross, that you are sinful, that you deserve judgment, But in the cross, we hear the good news that you are loved, you are accepted, 
you are forgiven. Have you come to that place? Have you been humbled by that? Have you turned from your way so that you are not excluded in the end? Because a prophet gives us a grand vision, a vision that captures our hearts. But he warns us at the end that that will not be what all people experience. I'd also say it's a reminder to us to be captured by that vision in labor for that vision and love people for the sake of God's heart for all people. Because exclusion from God's kingdom is a reality. We live in a time where God is being patient. He has not yet brought down his judgment. He has raised the rallying sign of the cross and is rallying people to himself. The church may be in decline in the West and in America and Europe, but it is flourishing all over the world. There are nations and tongues streaming into God's kingdom. Pray that we would be a part of that. That we would see that rallying point of the cross, realize we are sent out, and then labor with all our mights, with whatever we have, to bring people to God. To declare the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Christmas is coming up. And one of the key verses for that is the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. They said, we saw Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Have you caught a glimpse of that good news? And are you willing to go? Are you willing to extend that? Are you willing to labor? Are you willing to use whatever you have to bring people to God's glory? You are not going to accomplish that because you feel guilty about how you are doing. You are not going to accomplish that by sheer will. You're going to accomplish that if you see God's glory, if you get caught with the vision of that. If if you aren't there, I say pray to God that you would see it, that you would understand it, that it would capture your heart. Spend time in Scripture and soak it in. Talk to people who have caught that. Please, You are going to get burnt out if you do not do this by the glory of God, by understanding his glory and his goodness. Let's pray.